So Money, episode 579, Joe Piazza, author of How to Be Married. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome to So Money, everyone. A new topic for us today. We're talking about marriage. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. I'm obsessed with this topic. I wrote a book recently on when she makes more, female breadwinners in modern day marriage and how it impacts relationships, how to thrive in your marriage when the family economics are a little different. And when you think about advice around marriage in this country, it typically centers around pre-marriage, the engagement, the wedding, how to afford it, and then advice on how to deal with divorce. But what about the years in between? You know, marriage is wonderful, but it's also hard. And the more prepared you and your partner can be for the challenges from your money differences to raising kids to taking care of aging parents, the less likely I think you'll need to read that article about how to survive a divorce, right? Our guest today is Joe Piazza. She is a prolific writer and author whose recent book is part memoir, part investigation on the topic of marriage. And the book is called How to Be Married, What I Learned from Real Women on Five Continents About Surviving My First Really Hard Year of Marriage. In the book, Joe shares a framework to help the rest of us keep our marriages strong from your engagement into the newlywed years and beyond. More about Joe. She's an award-winning journalist who has written for The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, New York Daily News, New York Magazine, Elle, and many others. Her novel, Knock Off, became an international bestseller, and she's also the author of the critically acclaimed If Nuns Ruled the World and Celebrity Inc., How Famous People Make Money. If you're looking for some fun summer reads, there's a good list for you there. In our conversation, Joe and I talk about her personal foray into marriage, and the multiple challenges she and her husband unexpectedly faced. We talk about our culture's stigma around divorce and how it leads couples to stay in unhappy marriages, and what we can learn from French marriages. And it has really not a lot to do with infidelity, despite popular belief. There's another secret to a long marriage in France. Here is Joe Piazza. Joe Piazza, welcome to So Money. I love saying your last name, Piazza. So I love saying my last name. It's so fun? fun. It's almost like you were born to be an international reporter. Like it's you just have this great ring to your name. And I have been following your work for years, so it's really nice to be voice to voice with you now. I know this is great. This is great. My when when he met me, my husband actually said, "Saying your last name makes me want to go order a gelato." And I'm like, <laughs> it makes <"Yeah."> me hungry. <laughs> <laughs> Makes me salivate for something delicious. Yes. And your work is delicious. Your latest book is called How to Be Married, What I Learned from Real Women on Five Continents About Surviving My First Really Hard Year of Marriage. So many questions for you. First, thank you for writing a book on the topic of relationships and marriage. I feel like this is a real underserved topic 
And there are so many books out there for women on career and money, thankfully. But I think missing very much from the dialogue and conversation is how to be successful in your relationship. At the end of the day, on my deathbed, I'm not going to look back and go, I'm really glad I had a great website. I want to say I'm happy I had a thriving and happy, fulfilling relationship. We should cherish them and learn how to really be good at them. So why was your first year of marriage so hard? Let's start with that. What, what was What was difficult so that you wanted to really explore this deeply? Well, so many things. Uh, I ended up writing this book because I got married relatively late. I was engaged at 34, married at 35, and terrified of one being married. Like, how how do I be someone's wife? How do I transition from an independent woman who's been taking care of myself for so long to being someone's partner? And I started looking around and realized. There was nothing out there for me. There was no media for me to talk about how to have a successful and happy partnership before something was actually broken. There's a ton of books about fixing a broken marriage, but mine hadn't even started yet. And so I was incredibly lucky that I was a travel journalist for Yahoo at the time. And I was able to travel around the world and actually crowdsource marriage advice to bring in these bits and pieces about what created a successful partnership from cultures all over the world, which was incredibly cool. And that sounds like the setup for the perfect romantic comedy version of a first year of a marriage. But then what you quickly realize is that marriage and life throws the completely unexpected at you. So about six months into my marriage, I I lost my big, fancy, wonderful travel editor job. I was laid off uh, via a text message while we were actually climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. Yeah. Your boss texted you? My boss texted me. That's how we found out (sighs) that um, (sighs) I, I I was among the latest in the bloodbath of layoffs going on at the company. Um. And then we were dealing with sick parents. We dealt with my own really upsetting, really strange medical diagnosis. We found out I have this gene for muscular dystrophy that hits later in life, but still not something you want to find out. Four months after you married this guy who loves nothing more than going hiking and skiing and doing anything Mm. with two sets of healthy legs. Uh, And then because I was 35, when we got married, we had to start talking about having kids sooner rather than later. And so that throws this whole other curveball into what could be a happy-go-lucky newlywed year. And what I like to tell people is I feel like my husband, Nick, and I, through writing and reporting this book, and he was with me for a lot of the journey, went to marriage boot camp. Because as these crazy things started happening in our lives, we were able to report and write our way through them, through all the questions that I was asking other people, the really intrusive questions I was asking other people about their marriages. These days, we're getting married later and later in life, which is, I think, a good thing, don't you? Because then at that point, you really know yourself. But as you point out, you're also at a point in your life when you're set in your ways. So how did you uh, reconcile that? Uh, personally? And how did your husband reconcile that? I think getting married later is a wonderful thing. Uh, I just finished working on an op-ed about how women shouldn't get married until the age of 35. I also could have written 30, but I decided to push the envelope a little bit more. That'll be a better Uh, headline. Yes. It's a way better headline. Plus, I feel like men are constantly told, 
don't get married until you're financially secure, until you're set in your career, until you feel like you've reached your personal goals. Women aren't talked to like that. Women are talked to about getting married, partnering up from the second that we graduate college, sometimes even earlier. And I want to start a conversation around the fact that women should try to wait until we've reached our professional goals, until we feel successful, until we feel like we could take care of ourselves financially. And that's starting to happen. And so that's also why I wanted to have this conversation about marriage, because we are among the first generation where there's not an economic or societal imperative to be married. We're really choosing to be together. And that's different from most of the generations that came before us. And it comes with its own challenges, exactly like you said, because when you can choose to leave a marriage and successfully leave a marriage easier than before, how, how do you make someone stay? How do you right. keep, keep someone in a marriage? And that's, and that's tricky. And that's one of the things I was trying to figure out. In addition to, I'm so used to living my own life. I'm, I'm set in my ways. How do I bring this other person in? And the best example of that, we talk about it a little bit in the book. We also, we, we kind of made our first year of marriage hard. We decided to buy our first home a month after we got married. And we live in San Francisco and the rents were skyrocketing. We're like, it actually might be cheaper to get a mortgage. So we did, and we went through this whole mortgage process. And I remember I was on the phone with the mortgage broker, and our offer got rejected. And without even consulting my new husband, I just yell into the phone like I'm Jim Cramer on CNBC. <laughs> Raise it by 10 grand. Right. Bye, 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 bye. Right. My new husband's looking at me like, could, can't you just talk to me? But I was so used to making these decisions on my own that that didn't even occur to me. And that was our launching pad for the chapter on teamwork and compromise. And, and how do you, how do you learn those things late in life when both of you are set in your ways? Our divorce rate in this country is at least 50%. As you traveled the world, did you find that America is an outlier in that regard? And along the same lines, what were some of the best pieces of advice you discovered beyond our borders? America wasn't necessarily an outlier in terms of our divorce rate. Most westernized countries have about the same 40 to 50% divorce rate. The big difference, and I think this is a big difference and it really matters, is that we are among the only countries to stigmatize the idea of divorce so fully. We are one of the only countries to cling so desperately to the idea that if you don't stay married until the day one one of you passes away. That marriage was completely a failure. And my, my own parents believed that. They were married for 40 years and miserable by the end of it. But by my dad's measure, they stayed married. They stayed in it. And so it was a successful marriage, even though they were both tremendously unhappy. Mm. And what I realized in the cultures where there's less of a stigma about divorce, less of a stigma about getting remarried. In Denmark, couples will often celebrate their divorce anniversary, where both Gotta parties- love Denmark. They do so many things right there. They, they do so many things well, and including beautiful, beautifully designed chairs. But <laughs> they bring both parties 
together with their new families, celebrate a relationship that, that worked for a while, that had a lot of wonderful things about it, and then also celebrate this new life. And in Denmark, you can also get divorced by filling out the paperwork online, and it can cost a little over $100. So there was just less of this stigma and stress around the idea of divorce, which I think made the marriages happier because you're less terrified of this one awful thing happening to you in the future. And then there's also the fact that the people are much better taken care of by the government and there's a safety net in place. So you're not as worried about fighting over who's going to support who when a marriage dissolves. In France, you wrote a piece for Vogue about the French way of mar- of marriage. And we're so obsessed with French culture. We want to know how f- the French parent, we want to know how the French stay so skinny. We also want to know how do they stay happy in a relationship and something to do with infidelity, I suspect. <laughs> so that's exactly Let your what partner I- cheat. Is that the, is that the takeaway? That's what I suspected too. And I go, I went into this salon to have this talk about marriage with these very fancy French women with their perfect bangs and their very skinny cigarettes, which I thought was the cliche and it was completely true. And then I assumed the cliche was you also let your partner cheat. And I said that out loud and the silence was deafening. <laughs> I, might, I might as well have French said, silence is a lot more deafening than American silence. Oh, and it's terrifying. It's terrifying. And I might as well have said all of you kill puppies the way they were <laughs> staring at me. And what I learned is that for French women, while they will accept infidelity in others, they say, I don't mind if my president cheats. And almost all of the presidents cheat over there. Mm -hmm. Not here. Not here. Never here. (laughs) Um, They tolerate it in others. But in their own relationships, they don't. They say, would I want my man with someone else? Absolutely not. And so their mindset on that, though, is that it could happen. It's kind of sitting on the fringe of reality all the time. And so their idea on partnership and on marriage, and a lot of them tend not to get married. They'll tend to stay with their partner for a long time, be very committed, and not actually make it legal, is that each partner in a relationship has to conquer the other one every day. And to consciously remember to put in the effort, almost as if you were your partner's mistress, the person that they're having an affair with, to constantly think about how can I keep making this new, exciting, adventurous, and feel like we're still kind of dating. You know, I say this in the intro of the book, every romantic comedy we watch here in the States ends with the engagement or the wedding. We don't talk about the next 50 years. Mm -hmm. Or when we do, we see it on a sitcom with a schlubby husband, a typically hotter, funnier, wittier wife, and they're miserable. The whole sitcom is about their banter over he's not putting the toilet seat down or his toenail clippings end up in the bed. Marriage is not painted as an exciting adventure in American media. And the French believe it can be a different way, that we should look at it as, let's try to win each other every day. Let's wake up every day and choose each other. And I think that's an amazing mindset to have for a relationship. Another really interesting takeaway from your 
from your journey to France was that you learned that some women allow their men to really take the lead in the relationship. I'll take a, here's a quote from the article. It said, American women do not understand this. And this is in the context of allowing their husbands to pay for their lingerie to actually Mm -hmm. come to the store and have the experience together, but most importantly, have him pay. And so this begs the question, how important is chivalry and playing to those old fashioned uh, customs, whether it's like letting your man pay or letting him like order for you at dinner or um, even, you know, this idea of being married to a man that provides. Um, Mm -hmm. I wrote a book called When She Makes More, which is the opposite. And I found in my research that it's important, especially in those relationships, that there is some semblance of tradition, if that's what the couple wants, to to feel um, normalized in a way because it can feel so so unnatural to be like the bread female breadwinner in a relationship in even in 2017 believe it or not so to kind of play to these like uh, rituals can be very very helpful and healthy it's true I mean, the male ego is a real thing and we went through this in our first year too because when we first got married I was making more money than my husband um, about double the salary. And then I lost my job and the roles all of a sudden switched. All of a sudden he was the breadwinner. He was the one supporting us. But even in the very beginning, I remember him saying things to me and I married a man who is more of a feminist than I am. Um, I mean, he goes to equal rights marches. He read all of the Judy Bloom books as a little boy. He doesn't understand why everyone didn't read Blubber. And (laughs) it was, there was still this part of him that said to me, I want to be able to take care of you. Please let me try to take care of you. And it's not always a PC thing for us to say as these independent American women to say, oh, okay, I, I will let my, my husband take care of me. I want to make him feel good. I want to make him feel like he's supporting me and supporting our marriage And I have a whole chapter that talks a little bit about submission. And the women in Chile were very interesting. I mean, Chile's a very patriarchal country still. But the women said, hey, sometimes let the man lead. And it doesn't mean that you're ceding all of control, that you're handing in your feminist card. What it means is that you're actually, you're keeping your control by letting them feel like they're the ones making the decisions, mm-hmm. by letting them feel like they're the ones that are in control. Uh, and in that way, the women can continue to be the silent leaders. Uh, one of the things that I realized is we just had to keep talking, no matter how uncomfortable it was, about the idea of gender roles. Um, I'm about to have a baby. In Congrats. Thank you. In six weeks. Yay. <laughs> So um, this book tour is my last stand before my doctor says no more flying. Uh, And I'm taking a relatively lengthy maternity leave. And my husband is really excited about being able to take care of me and the baby, more excited than I thought he was going to be. Um, And that just goes to show, I think, that you have to allow each partner to feel needed in a relationship. It's not a politically perfect setup. I mean, I, and I will say when I came out with when she makes more, I was also about to have a baby. I was also talking a lot about gender roles and submission and the feminists came after me, like it was their job. And I felt that we were sort of 
we were all on the same team. I'm like, I, I'm with you. If there's not, if I'm a feminist, I mean, hello, I'm writing a book about female breadwinners and why it's important to maintain that status and be, you know, happy in a relationship as a result. And I just felt like they were missing the, the point, you know, and that it, they were attacking me for this, for, for something that isn't even my own research. It's like, if you have an issue with gender roles and male ego, like go talk to the behaviorists and the scientists and the anthropologists that all say it's true. It's so unfair because I've also been attacked by a lot of feminists who say, you claim this is a feminist book about marriage, and yet you're talking about submission and gender yeah. roles. I say, yes, I am. There's there's a whole chapter about the Dutch, too. The majority of Dutch women choose to work part-time so that they have more time not just for their families, not just for their kids, but for them. Um, I'm not saying that's necessarily a perfect model, but they are fierce and independent and strong, and they call themselves feminists. And they looked me right in the eye and said, this is my feminist choice. I'm choosing me. Yes, yes. And I'm not necessarily choosing a career. And who said that career has to be the only feminist choice? Right. I have a choice. I'm making a choice. Therefore, I am feminist. Like, that's exactly. the whole point is to be able to have equal opportunity. Yeah. And by the way, men are also now choosing not to work and stay at home. And that's their masculine choice. Exactly. <laughs> you know, so let's just understand that we're coming from the same perspective. When it comes to money, let's transition a little bit. What did you learn? Did you learn anything about how couples work around money and um, use money as a tool in the relationship in a healthy way because money is a leading cause of arguments and therefore divorce. So did that come up a lot? It did. It did, especially after I lost my job because it's something that we personally started thinking about a lot. I ended up stumbling onto this matrilineal tribe on the border of India and Bangladesh um, called the Kazi. And what makes them incredibly different is that the family name, the property, and the money is all passed down through women. It goes to the youngest daughter in the family, which makes the women be the ones with a lot of power, control, and earning power. So they have their own problems, uh, namely that in the past 10 years or so, as men have gotten satellite television and the internet, they realize, wow, it's not like this in the rest of the world, and a lot of men are leaving. But what was so interesting was to see that in a place where one of the only places in the world where women are institutionally favored over men, where they have control of the money and the property, they made sure to create compromise within a marriage. They said they would never make a large financial decision without their husband, that they wouldn't equate the idea of earning power with personal power. And I thought that was very interesting because even with some of my incredibly progressive married friends in the States. And sadly, this is what does happen when a lot of couples have a child because we don't have parental leave policies here. A lot of the burden ends up falling to the woman and the woman leaves the workforce. Even incredibly highly educated women with huge earning power before having a baby. And what my friends have said to me is, when my earning power dropped, I felt like my personal power dropped. I felt like I had less of a stake in making our large financial decisions for our family because I wasn't the one bringing in the money. And the biggest thing I learned was that you have to talk about it before it starts to get weird and it starts to get ugly. 
and that the key is compromise and you can't equate money with power because the second you start to do that, you're really setting your marriage up for failure. Amen. You can do that in business and in your career, but not at home. Absolutely. Not at home. But no. it is so second nature to us to think that way, right? Because that's all we've been taught and told in the context of life. But that is a recipe for disaster in your relationship, 100%. And it's also, I spent a lot of time looking at arranged marriage. Yeah. And tell me about that. There's incredibly high satisfaction in arranged marriages. And one of the reasons is that people talk about these things that are kind of icky before they get married. And not the, it's not just the couple talking about it. It's the couple's parents and their cousins and their community talking about it. And so many times in the States, because we are so liberated, because we do have such an incredible amount of choice when we're looking for a partner, we don't talk about those things that are kind of icky and gross. Like, how do you like to spend money? How do you feel about debt? What kind of debt do you have? What's going to happen if we have to take care of a sick parent? And so all of a sudden you're married, everything seems great, and you get these money curveballs thrown at you. And you've never had the conversation before. And so many other cultures focus a lot on hashing those things out before a marriage. But because Americans are so caught up in the fairy tale notion of happily ever after, and let's just think about this wedding instead of the next 50 years, Mm -hmm. we don't always address those things early on. In your personal life, how have you guys, how have you dealt with money issues? What was like one situation that was really stressful? I know you talked about getting the mortgage felt the, your, was it the house? The house. The house, right. That fell through. And was there any other, like, can you give us an example of a scenario that was sticky and you work your, how you worked your way through that? Well, we have a, we're on the same page about a lot of the money things, uh, except for some really small minutia. My husband is a frequent flyer mile geek. He collects frequent flyer miles like most people collect stamps or seashells or something. So he wants every transaction that our family has to be on a credit card, namely six different credit cards, which he, which he sorts into different categories, depending on different airlines. And I'm much more of a person who transacts in cash. The, the idea of having different debt on different cards every month drives me crazy. Uh, but we do, thankfully, we have the same outlook on debt. We pay everything off every month. But it drove me nuts in the beginning of our relationship. And we had a lot of arguments over it. We had to come to the conclusion, like, you do you with your frequent flyer miles and, and your different credit cards, and I'll do me with my debit card over here where I can see the money coming in and out of my account, and I feel incredibly safe every month. And for us, our solution was separate bank accounts, and it's just what makes both of us sane. Some people think we're crazy for doing that. I have my account, he has his account, and we have one joint account. But now we're reworking that entire paradigm as we get ready to have the baby. Mm-hmm. And so we have to go back to the drawing table and figure it out all over again. One of the things that I talk about a lot is that we've been seeing a marriage counselor since before we got married. Uh, I think that therapy for a marriage is a wonderful thing, having this third party to bounce ideas off of. And so as we encounter another roadblock, when it comes to our finances in our marriage, we're going to sit down with someone and really 
talk about what's going to work going forwards because I don't think that the two people that are stuck in the muck together necessarily have that clarity to come up with a comprehensive plan. I love that you're busting these myths and stigmas in your book. I mean, the fact that you and your husband have been seeing a counselor when things were going well and before you were even married says a lot about the power of having an accountability partner, an intermediary, just getting that help. A lot of us would think that that is this, that spells disaster or that, you know, all the handwriting is on the wall. They were seeing a therapist before they were even married. But uh, a lot of this just has to do with our frame of reference and the way we think, right? Marriage is, is really more, it's in your head more than anything. Absolutely. And in a lot of other cultures, it's not just these two people in a marriage. It really is an entire tribe, both of the families. And you have more marriage mentors, for lack of a better word. You have older role models who are willing to talk things through with you, to give you advice. But we've evolved into this culture where you go off and you move into little tribes of two. And then you grow your own little tribe of two. And we don't talk amongst ourselves about marriage enough. The things that we share on social media tend to be the perfect parts of our marriage. So we're constantly looking at everyone else and assuming they're incredibly happy. They have it all figured out. And because we've lost this community, we've also lost the support system to tell us how to be married. And so for us, the answer was having a counselor for Some of my friends, they've found their own marriage mentors, couples that are about five years or 10 years ahead of them, that they feel really comfortable asking questions and having those people be their third party advisors. But it's just not something that's ingrained in the American culture at all. Even the French women that I talked to were so much more open about giving each other good advice about a a marriage. They weren't as afraid to admit this isn't perfect all the time. I think I do need help. How do you make this work? And I think Americans feel like we should never admit that anything's wrong in our marriage until something is really, really wrong. We don't want to talk about the day-to-day shit that we go through. Yeah. Thank you for writing this book. It's called How to Be Married. And I'm happy to see that it's it's hit number one in on Amazon in its category and funny story that we didn't even get into. But you met your husband on, an, on a boat in the Galapagos Islands and you were engaged three months later. So you took a chance. And I'm so happy that you're not willing to just let your marriage just kind of go now play its course by chance. You're really working on it. We're working on it. It was it was the happy ending, fairy tale ending to thirty four years of <laughs> terrible dates. And so I got that and then I was like, Oh my gosh, what do I do with it? Yeah. So now we're figuring out what to do with it. Well, and helping so many others along the way. Joe Piazza, thank you so much. And um I can't wait for your next book. You're such a prolific writer and every book is better than the next. Thank you so much. This was so much fun. Thanks so much to Joe for stopping by. The book's website is howtobemarried.us. Joe's website is joepiazza.com and she's on Twitter at joepiazza. If you missed any of this, just head over to somoneypodcast.com and I look forward to hearing from you. I know you've got a money question on your mind, right? Or a question about marriage. Send me your thoughts. Go to somoneypodcast.com and click on Ask Farnoosh and I will add you to the list for the Friday episodes. Thanks for tuning in and I hope your day is so money. Oh,